Well, there's an old uh, cliche that says, if you want to know what someone really cares about, all you have to do is check their calendar and their bank account. And there's a lot of truth to that, and, and I would say that that's probably, you know, across the board pretty true, but I would add one more thing to it. I would say if you want to know what someone really cares about, what they really want, what they really desire, check their calendar, check their bank account, but also check their prayer list. What do they pray for? We pray about what we care about, don't we? We ask God for what we really desire. I read a story this past week about a little boy whose grandparents were visiting uh, his family one evening, and it was time for him to go to bed, and so his mom took him upstairs, and he, he knelt beside his bed to say his prayers, and it started off really subdued and, and really reserved as he prayed, Lord, bless mommy, and Lord, bless daddy, and bless all of my friends, but slowly it started to crescendo, and he ended up with a, a passionate shout, and God, give me a new bicycle, to, to which his mom said, son, you don't need to raise your voice. God isn't deaf, to which the son replied, yes, but grandma is. <laughs> we pray for what we want, whether we're hoping God hears us, or our grandma hears us, or our parents hear us, or whoever. If you want to know what really matters to you, just think about what occupies your prayer list. What is it you need? What is it you want? What is it you desire and love? Prayer is the window into our hearts. So you could evaluate your prayer this past week and just ask yourself, okay, well, what do I really love? This is so important because in our text today, we're actually invited to listen in on the prayers of Christ. The curtain is pulled aside, so to speak, and the throne room of God is basically just presented right in front of us. And Jesus is there pouring out his heart to his Father. Just try to imagine this scene. There really isn't a more remarkable chapter in the entire Bible than John 17 because it's as if we're getting a backstage pass into the throne room of heaven. We have heard in other passages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit prays for us. That's in Romans 8. We've seen in Hebrews 7 that Jesus is interceding. He's praying for us. But in John 17, we're actually seeing what they're praying for us. So if you want to know what Jesus really cares about, if you want to know what he really longs for, this chapter is the answer. The prayer itself is, is broken up into three sections. Caroline just read um, a, a brief portion of it. The, the first section, Jesus prays for himself. It's just a couple of verses. It's not long at all, which is a sermon by itself because usually we spend our entire prayer for ourselves and then maybe like the very end, everyone else. Jesus is the opposite. It's just like a verse or two about himself and then everything else is for um, his disciples. So then the second section is he actually prays for the men who are around him, these 11 men who are faithful disciples. They haven't abandoned him. Judas has left. But then in the final section, he doesn't just pray for himself. He doesn't just pray for his disciples, but he prays for you, and he prays for me. This should really blow us away. 
And this is just a side note, but I want you to, to, again, put yourself in this situation and try to just imagine 2,000 years ago, it's the eve of his crucifixion. Jesus is about to, about to experience excruciating pain, all kinds of suffering, and, 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 and he's, he's about to go and, and, and fall on his knees and beg God to take the cup away, and he's going to sweat drops of blood and all of this kind of stuff. We're, we know the story, but in that moment, he's looking ahead, and he's thinking about you. And me, this is staggering to me. We're on his mind in this moment. We're on his heart. And as a result, we're in his prayers. So the big question that we need to answer today is, what does Jesus really care about? What does Jesus want more than anything for you and for me? What is it that he's longing to see his father do for us and in us and through us? And he, he longs for this so much that on the night of, before his crucifixion, he's praying for it. The answer is simple and yet it is weighty and profound. And it's one word. It's actually the word one Look back at verse 20. I do not ask for these only talking about his disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. We believe because of them. That they may all be one. Not that we might be healthy and wealthy or comfortable and safe or happy and free. Not that those are bad things and we could all give a hearty amen to a lot of those things. But that we would all be one. What consumed the heart of Christ on the night of his crucifixion was the unity of his bride. I can't think of a more important or a more relevant or a more appropriate prayer than this one for us today because of all the things that we American Christians in the 21st century are experiencing and living, you could say of all of it, we really struggle with this, to actually be one, to actually be unified. It's not just that our country is divided. It's that our churches are divided too. And I'm not just talking about life church. I mean, honestly, guys, we're a new church. We haven't really experienced that much drama yet. That's like year three. We're still in year two. So, you know, just buckle up because next year is going to be fun. But I'm not just talking about our church. I'm talking about church in general, okay? It's not just the country that's divided. It's not just our communities. It's, it's our churches as well. I think we felt this so much this past year in real and tangible ways. And we did feel this in our church. There was, there was tension and there were all kinds of different reasons for it. Several, several years ago, there was a, a really popular movie called The Perfect Storm. I don't know if you saw this. Um, with George Clooney. George Clooney played this captain of a, of a fishing boat, and they're out in the Atlantic Ocean, and while they were out at the Atlantic Ocean, just a violent storm swept over them, and I think all of them died. I can't remember if one of them might have survived or not, but it, it's called The Perfect Storm because it was actually the convergence of three different storms, one of the storms being a Category 2 hurricane, and all three of these storms converged to create this perfect storm and the waves were insurmountable and everyone perished. I feel like that was 2020 for the church. I feel like 2020 was the perfect storm. 
because he had like these three really violent, you just, you know, absurd storms all converging together. You had a global pandemic and all of the surrounding ramifications of that. There was George Floyd. There was all of the, the, the uh, racial uh, consideration, the protests. There were, there were riots here in Charlotte. We felt a lot of that. Um, dealing with how, how, how should we as a church talk about race and racial reconciliation, all of the ramifications that came from that. And then you had an election, like as if those first two things weren't big enough. We had Trump and Biden. It really was the perfect storm of a year. And if there's one thing I have taken away from this past year, it is the realization that we are more polarized and more divided than ever before, at least in my, my lifetime. Not even a pandemic could bring us together. <laughs> but the shocking thing for me is the fact that it isn't just our country that's split in two. We already knew that. It's the fact that our churches look just like everything else. Masks or no masks? That is the question. <laughs> shut down or no shut down? This year we get to talk about vaccines. Can't wait. Vaccine or no vaccine? Black lives matter or all lives matter? Is, is systemic racism a reality or is it a myth? Trump or Biden, left or right, choose your side, choose your tribe. And if people disagree with you, cut your ties. Unfollow, unfriend, separate, and divide. I actually had this guy, yeah, I love this guy, I discipled him for years. I married him and his wife. Evidently, we're not friends anymore because of all of this stuff I just talked about. You guys have experienced the same thing. It's painful. It's hard. We look and sound just like the polarized world around us. And as a result, guys, I want you to get this. This is what we're talking about today. As a result, we have missed the heart of God. I can say that with confidence and with boldness because what God wants more than anything for us today is our unity, that we would be one. So what does that mean? That's the big question for us. And if I'm slowing down every once in a while, I apologize. There's like ink all over these pages and it is really hard to read. So sorry for that. This is, you know, this is where the Holy Spirit does his thing. Um, but what does it look like to be one? So there are three things about this oneness that Jesus longed to see in us. That's what I want to show you today. And they're all in this prayer. We're going to unpack it. It's not going to be as long as normal, but it is going to be weighty. And so we're praying for the Holy Spirit to work and to move. And so before I even get into it, let me just bow and pray. And I want you to bow with me. And let's just pray for the Spirit to work in this time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it cuts us, that it gets into our hearts, it exposes our idols. But we thank you that it is what transforms us. And so, Spirit, we ask you to move now in ways that only you can as your word is proclaimed. We, we beg you that you would create unity in this body, that we would be one. 
that Christ's prayer 2,000 years ago would be answered yes in us today. Pray this for your fame and for your glory. Amen. So three things I want to show you about this oneness. First, I'm going to show you what it looks like. Second, I'm going to show you how we get there. And then finally, I'm going to show you what it accomplishes. So in other words, I'm going to show you the nature of oneness. I'm going to show you the source of oneness. And then I'm going to show you the goal of oneness. So let's start with the nature. What does oneness look like? Look back at verse 20 through 21 and and I'll show you. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, before we unpack that and get into what that means, because the answer is in there, I want to show you two things it doesn't mean. <laughs> because usually when we think about oneness and unity, we, we, have, we make two errors, and they're deadly errors. The first one is that we think he's talking about organizational unity or institutional unity. In the first century, when the apostles were still alive and and churches were being planted, the gospel was spreading like wildfire and, and Christians were devoted to the word and they were devoted to each other, there was not a lot of organizational unity, institutional unity. A a few centuries later, though, after 70% of the Roman Empire was converted and Constantine took over, he and his successors tried to change all of that. And they, they really went for a centralized power dynamic of an organizational church. It's, it's the church of Rome, right? We, we know what it is to this day. They really wanted to consolidate power and achieve organizational unity. So everyone had to utter the same phrases. Everyone had to worship in the same postures. Everyone had to belong to the same church system. And if you tried to do it any other way, you were going to get imprisoned, tortured, and killed. This is long, long history of uh, of martyrdom because of this. By the time the Middle Ages came, the church had achieved organizational unity. They had achieved the dream of Constantine throughout all of Europe. But if you know anything about history, you know that this was not actually a great age of faith. You know that the Middle Ages was not a great time for unity in the church. It's, it's called the Dark Ages for a reason. It, it was a bad time. It was the opposite of what Jesus was praying for. Charles Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite uh, authors from a, a century ago, looked back on that time like this. He said, the world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity. And thinking men became infidels and it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer north, south, east, or west. That was his indictment on the achievement of Rome and organizational unity. It has its place, but it's okay to actually have different churches. It's okay to have different denominations. It's okay to have different styles and different emphases and preferences and all of those kinds of things. It's okay to have different theological positions on secondary issues. There's no room for that with organizational unity. So that's not what Jesus is praying for. I don't think we struggle with that one, though. I think we struggle with this one. This is the second error. Jesus was not praying for uniformity. This is where we err more often than not. Uniformity is the approach to Christianity that tries to make everyone 
look like us and talk like us and think like us so that we're all exactly alike. We want to be with people that look like us. We want to be with people who listen to the same commentaries that we listen to, the same podcasts, who view the world through the same ideology and philosophical system. We just want to like, fit in with people. And so we're always like hopping from church to church. I don't do this anymore because I'm stuck here. But like, you're always like hopping from church to church. Like, where's the church that fits me? That, like, where people have the same ideas about things that I do. Right? This is, this is a desire for uniformity. And so if people don't look like us, we'll stay for a little while. We'll try to debate people into our side. But if they don't come to our side, we'll divide and we'll bounce. Does this sound familiar at all? Yes, maybe a little bit. For example, I, I love one of the battles that we would do this over. Uh, this was like 20 years ago. And it was, it was called the Worship Wars. I kind of laugh at this now because we've been out of it for a while, um, but maybe you grew up in something like this, and this was the battle over how we worshiped, hymns or choruses. Remember this fight? Organ and piano or electric guitar and drums. Who's going to win? Traditional or contemporary? Are we going to get our, you know, four-part harmonies from a hymnal, or are we going to, you know, sing anthems that we heard on the radio that's projected on a screen? These were the worship wars. It sounds silly to us today, but people were really, really passionate about it back then. They were really convicted about it. In fact, they would approach this debate with spiritual fervor, with a a hard, here's a line in the sand, and if you love Jesus, you're on this side, and if you don't love Jesus, you're on that side. So they started to divide over worship style. Some churches were traditional, and some churches were contemporary. Some, some churches tried to find a middle ground. They would have like a traditional service at 8 a.m. Uh, for the older generation, and then they'd have a contemporary service at at 10 when the young people could wake up because for some reason we don't know how to set an alarm and then and then we would come at, at 10 for the contemporary and and in some weird way I don't know who thought of this they thought that would create unity like what in the world but but churches were doing that you see whenever it comes to uniformity there is and I want you to get this very little room for compromise there is very little space for empathy and there is very little time for a little word called grace. It's always my way or the highway. Look like me, think like me, worship like me, or I'm going to leave you and find a church that does. The desire for uniformity is what church splits are made of. And we know a lot about that in America. Right? Let's think about an example from this past year because... At this point, worship wars are meaningless. Let's, let's just think about masks. Can I, can I just talk about masks? I know this is really dangerous right now. Let's just talk about masks for a second. <laughs> Everyone's getting so tense. Take a deep breath. Let's laugh at ourselves a little bit. It's okay. Some of you... Um, have strong convictions about whether or not people should be wearing masks. In fact, I would imagine all of you do. Some of you feel really strongly that masks should be required at all times. So you're the person who is wearing the mask at dinner, and 
you pull it down and you take a bite and then you put it back up and you, you chew under that thing. You're the person who drives alone in your car wearing a mask. You're the person who showers <laughs> wearing a mask. Um, I don't know if anyone actually does that, but man, that would be, that would be great if that's you. Um, others of you feel really strongly that masks shouldn't be required at all. You're out there with Buddy the Elf picking up gum off of the railing. You're like, I gotta build my immune system. <laughs> you know, I, it's herd immunity, baby. Like, take the mask off. Let's let's go after this. Some of you really don't care either way. You're just going with the flow. You're baffled that there are like these two sides that are really passionate about it. You're just like, it's a mask. I'm I'm just gonna put this thing on. I don't like the smell of my breath, but it is what it is. Some of you are there. So, you know, you could ask the question, do you have a strong opinion over a mask? And the answer is probably yes. Here's a better question, though. Are you willing to separate yourself from a church where people don't share your conviction? Well, you're here right now, so clearly not. <laughs> but it's a good question. It's an important question. What about your views on race in America? What about your views on politics since everything seems to be political at this point. What happens when people disagree with you in your body, in your family, in your church? If uniformity is the goal, then you will separate with those who disagree with you. And you'll try to find someone who lines up. But that's not what Christ was praying for the night of his crucifixion. He wasn't praying for uniformity. He was praying for unity. Not that we would all be alike, but that in the midst of our differences, we would love each other. What does that mean? What does it mean to be one? Okay, he tells us explicitly, so let's get into it. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You want to know what, what oneness looks like, what unity looks like? Look to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit who binds them because that's the answer. That's what Jesus was praying for us. Just as we are one, may they also be one. What in the world could that possibly mean for us? How are they unified? Well, they're unified first in their love for each other. The love that they have for each other binds them together. They're unified in the desire that they have to glorify each other as well. They're unified in the mission that they have to spread their glory throughout the world by redeeming sinful human beings. In other words, they're unified in their affections, they're unified in their aspirations, and they are unified in their purpose and their aim. They have one heart and they have one mind. If you read the New Testament and the epistles, guess what Paul is always praying for us? That we'd have one heart and one mind, just like they do. 
Ephesians 1 is a perfect example of this. It shows us this unity uh, in action. So in, in Ephesians 1, we're not going to read it. We don't have time to, but I'm going to give you like a nutshell summary. Go back and read it later on. But in Ephesians 1, the Father loves the Son. He's loved him in all eternity, for all eternity. He's just been showering him with blessings. And he loves him so much that as an overflow of that love, he decides to adopt many more sons and daughters into his family so that he can love them too. And so before the foundations of the world were ever even laid, he chooses some for adoption. Those of us who are in Christ are now his sons and daughters. To the praise of his glory, which means he does all of this so that his name will be glorified, so that his fame will spread in the world. Then he sends his son, halfway through Ephesians 1, he sends his son to do the work to go and get those sons and daughters, to go and redeem sinful mankind. And the son does that so that his father's name will be glorified, so that his father's name will be praised. And then later on, it gets to the spirit and the son sends the spirit and the spirit seals us and he, he, he becomes our guarantee of a future inheritance and he does all of that so that his name will be praised and glorified throughout the world. So Ephesians 1, we see that they have a shared love for each other. We see that they have a shared mission to save the lost. And we see that in everything they do, they do it so that their name will be praised and glorified. This is what unity looks like in our triune Godhead. Affection, aspiration, aim. That's what Jesus is praying for us. That our hearts would burn with love for him that our hearts would burn with affection for his people as well. We wouldn't just love God, but we'd love others. That's the law, right? That's what it's all summed up in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, especially those of the household of faith. So we love him. We love each other with the same kind of love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. Unity looks like our thoughts being consumed with the mission that he has been on ever since Eden and that he is now entrusted to us to go out and seek and save the lost. Man, I know what it's like to find common ground around secondary things like soccer. You know, when you meet someone that likes something that you like, that cares about something that you care about, especially something that's kind of like niche, <laughs> which soccer isn't niche, but in America, for some reason, it is. When you find someone and you're like, oh, man, do you like that too? I've met a couple of you guys who follow English soccer, and there's like an immediate connection. of Like, I want to spend time with that person. Some of you have a weird taste in music, and it's the same thing. Like, you like country, and you meet someone who likes country, and... You have this weird bond and you ride tractors. I don't know what you do. Um, what would it look like for us to bond over our shared mission that God has entrusted to us as his people? To, I mean, I want to spend time with that person because that person loves the glory of God and she loves the glory of God and he loves the glory of God so much that everything else is secondary and he lives so that that glory can spread throughout the world. My favorite example of friendship in the Old Testament is David and Jonathan. It's probably my favorite example of friendship in, in 
in the world, really. It's like the best one. You know why David and Jonathan loved each other so much? Because they had a shared passion for the glory of God. This isn't in my notes, so I'm kind of stepping out here, so I don't have it on a slide or anything. But if you go back and you read the story of, of David and Jonathan, the chapter before David kills Goliath, do you know what Jonathan does? Jonathan sees a Philistine outpost in the promised land, in their land, and it's an affront to the glory of God. It's an insult to the power of God that those pagans had set up an outpost in God's land that he had given his people. And Jonathan is filled with this rage. He's filled with this passion for the glory of God. And so he looks at his servant and he's like, listen, I'm going to go scale that cliff and I'm going to go take that outpost. And if I don't die and I win, that means God is honored. And so he, he does that. He goes and scales this cliff he climbs up the mountain, he takes over the outpost, and he kills all the Philistines by himself. And he's like, God's given me the day. God's given me the outpost. Praise be to God. I did this for his glory. And then in the next chapter, the Philistines send this giant, and he's mocking their God. And he's saying, send someone to fight me. Who will dare to fight me? And everyone is afraid. They're all cowards. They're letting this Philistine mock the glory of their God. And then David shows up and he's like, not on my watch. And he's like, I'll fight that, that Philistine. And he gets his sling and he gets some stones and he goes and he takes out that giant. And Jonathan sees us. That's a guy after my heart. That guy cares about the glory of God so much so that he's willing to put his own life on the line to defend it. I just did that. That's what I'm all about. I got to meet that guy. And then they start exchanging gifts and their best friends and the rest is history, right? What would it look like for our friendships to be built on that? That's what unity in the Godhead looks like. A shared passion for their own glory. That's what unity in our body should look like as well. That we say we care more about the glory of God than anything else in the world and we're going to go advance it at all costs. That's what Jesus is praying for in the midst of all of our secondary differences, in the midst of all of our biases and traditions and ideologies, in the midst of our divergent opinions and preferences and even convictions, that we would still be one. That's what it means. That's what he's after. So how do we get there? What's the source of that oneness? Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you that they also may be in us. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one. You know what Jesus is doing here? You know what he's saying? He's going back to John 15. He's using this language of abiding. You remember John 15, abide in me and I in you. And anyone who abides in me, I will abide in them. And, and they will produce great fruit. You remember that in John 15? Do you want to know what one of the most important fruits that grows out of abiding in Christ? It's unity in his body. That we would be perfectly one. In fact, you could say it this way. The result of abiding in Christ will be unity in his people. So here's the truth, and we've really got to get this today. 
The reason we struggle so much with unity in the church is because we really struggle with abiding in Christ. The reason we have such a hard time with empathy and with compromise and with grace and gray areas and disputable things is because the word has not found a resting place in our hearts. That's why. See, we spend so much time abiding in social media, abiding in television, abiding in the news. It's no wonder we don't love like Christ. It's no wonder we don't think like Christ. It's no wonder we don't live like Christ. The source of oneness, guys, is him. He is the source. And so if we're not abiding in him, oneness cannot and will not ever be achieved. Just think about how true this is with the news. Let's like get on a little, you know, soapbox here if you don't mind. If you spend an hour a day with Tucker Carlson, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to start thinking like him and talking like him. I mean, his thoughts and his words are going to start like seeping out into your own. If you spend an hour a day with Don Lemon, his interpretation of the world is going to start impacting your interpretation of the world, right? If you spend an hour a day with Ben Shapiro, his philosophy and his sarcasm is going to start directly coming out in your own. (laughs) I've had to stop listening to some guys, and I'll just be transparent with you right now. I've had to stop listening to some guys because I found that I was having a really hard time loving people on the other side. I was having a really hard time not wanting to shake people to their senses and just get them to listen to reason. I was having a really hard time empathizing. I was having a really hard time caring, serving, loving, and praying for them. Do you feel that? I'm going to tell you a secret. That's what happens when you abide in the news. If you find yourself longing for uniformity and you're having a really hard time with unity, it's because you're being led by a shepherd who isn't Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's Fox News, it doesn't matter if it's CNN, it doesn't matter if it's Newsmax or if it's MSNBC. It doesn't matter if it's Jordan Peterson or Brett Weinstein or Robin D'Angelo. If you're being led by a shepherd who isn't Jesus, oneness will never be achieved. Christ's prayer will never be answered in you and me. So all I can do is beg you to abide. Get out your Bible and read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Consume it until it finds a home in you and starts to transform you so that it makes you more like Jesus. He's the source. 
The only way we become like him, the only way we'll ever be led by him is if we abide in him, if his word abides in us. That's the source. So what's the goal? What's the result of oneness? Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. God's glory and our glory are inextricably connected to our oneness, to our unity. Do you see that? If you don't see it, look back at verse 22. The glory you have given me, I have given to them. Christ's glory that was given to him from his father is now given to us as his brothers and his sisters and his followers, that we may be one just as they are one. That's what Paul means when he prayed that Christ might be glorified in the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, that Christ would be glorified in us, that the church would be glorified in the world. It's all about oneness. It's all about unity. When we have one mind and when we have one heart and one love and one mission, in spite of all of our differences, guys, God gets great glory. What else could possibly happen? He gets great glory and we get great glory as well. You see this, his fame spreads and the fame of his people spreads as well. Not in like a celebrity way, but a like, did you see what God did with that church? God is incredible. And as a result, the world will know that Jesus was who he said he was. Guys, this is so important. Our unity in the body of Christ is the final sign. It's the final validation that Jesus was who he said he was. Every miracle that he did when he was alive, every sign that he did, every person he healed, every person he raised, every storm that he calmed, on and on and on it goes. The final sign is this right here. The world will see that we are one, and in seeing, they will believe that he was who he said he was, that he was sent from God, and that God loves us just as much as he loves him. His deity is proved in our oneness. Guys, this is an incredibly wonderful thought. I mean, just sit in that thought all day. It's an incredibly wonderful thought, and at the same time, it's an incredibly weighty thought. If Christ's deity is demonstrated by our unity, what happens if that unity is never achieved? What happens if we keep dividing over worship and style and philosophy and politics? What happens if we keep splitting up every time we don't see eye to eye? What happens if we keep drawing lines in the sand over every secondary issue and bailing on everyone who disagrees with us? <laughs> the answer is that we won't just miss the heart of God. 
The answer is that we will miss his purpose for us and the glory that he's reserved for us as well. In other words, we'll miss our inheritance as his people. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob had this inheritance. He had this blessing. Most important thing in the world. Honor, wealth, status. And yet he came back from a hunting trip and he was, he was famished. He was starving. In that moment, the only thing that he cared about was his belly. And you know the story. <laughs> Jacob, the, the schemer, the conniver, had made a pot of soup or whatever they ate back then. Porridge, I don't know. And, and he was positioned exactly where he knew Esau was going to be coming in from his long trip. And he had that soup for him and it smelled so good. And Esau said, give me some of that soup. And Jacob said, listen, I'll give you this soup if you give me your birthright. If you give me your inheritance. He satisfied his desire in the moment what he wanted in that moment for what he really wanted more than anything, what he desired the most, which was his inheritance. And guys, all I can say is I think we do this so often as believers today, as churches today. I think, I think the world has all of these pots of soup. I think our enemy is really smart, by the way. If Jacob was a conniver, if Jacob was a schemer, don't you think our enemy is like a million times better? And he's got all of these pots of soup and he doesn't know which one we're going to go after. He doesn't know if we like broccoli cheddar. He doesn't know if we like onion. And he doesn't know if we like chicken noodle. But he's got them all laid out in front of us. And he says, listen, here's, um, here's some political power that you could gain. If you, just, if you just trade your inheritance, you can have that. Man, here's some social status Oh, goodness, here, you get your ideology. It's, it, you get uniformity, and on and on and on it goes. And what we do is we see all of these things, and, and we're like, we want them. We want people to think like us. We want people to look like us. We want people to believe and act and worship like us. And so we take the soup, and we trade our inheritance. We give up glory to satisfy our bellies. The result of this is devastating. Honestly, guys, we're in the state we're in today as a church, not because of politics, not because of the sexual revolution and on and on, not because of secularism. We're in the state we are in today because the church gave up its inheritance, traded the glory of God for a bowl of soup. But what happens, guys, if this prayer is answered? What happens if we shift if, if we allow the Holy Spirit to expose our idolatry and expose where we've gotten off track and we say, we repent of this. And we want to follow you. And we want this prayer to be answered. What, what happens? What is the result of oneness? And the answer is God's glory. The answer is our good. And the answer is the advance of the gospel in the world. That men and women who are far from God will be brought close. That they will believe that he was who he said he was and that will turn from everything the world had to offer and they will enter the kingdom of light and life. Our unity will draw them to Christ. Do you long for that? 
Do you want to see that? Guys, this is what Jesus wanted more than anything for you and me. On the night before his death, he thought of you. He thought of us. And he prayed, Father, make them one. May the answer for this church always be, yes. Yes, Lord. Amen. Do it in us, even now.